Welcome to the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 5th. I'm your host, Anastasia Glova. Many questions are left unanswered after the Supreme Court ruled in Massachusetts v. EPA that carbon dioxide emissions are a pollutant that falls within the regulatory purview of the Environmental Protection Agency. Among the questions, will the EPA comply or will it provide scientific evidence against regulatory action? Are the courts now fair game for further environmental litigation? And how does this case alter standing doctrine for future cases? To sort all this out, today's guest is Cato Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies, Mark Mahler. What was the court's holding in Massachusetts v. EPA? Well, this was a case that started with a petition filed by a number of states and nonprofit groups, and they asked the EPA to regulate what are called greenhouse gas emissions, emissions by cars like CO2 that are said to contribute to global warming. And the EPA declined to take up this invitation to regulate these emissions. The groups then filed suit in court, and they essentially said that the Clean Air Act not only covers these greenhouse gas emissions, but it obligates the EPA to step in and regulate, and that the EPA has essentially abdicated its statutory duty to deal with the global warming problem. The groups lost in the lower courts, and then it went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agreed to an extent with these environmental groups. It said that the Clean Air Act does cover global warming emissions, and it said that the EPA needs to reconsider the petition. One thing it didn't say is that the EPA has to step in and regulate right away. It simply said that the EPA hadn't come up with good enough reasons under the statute for not regulating. And in particular, that the EPA has to come forth with a scientific judgment about the dangers of global warming. The EPA hadn't adequately justified not regulating based on the science of global warming, and it needs to do a better job of this come up with some evidence that global warming doesn't pose a significant danger to the public, and the EPA hadn't made that finding. But EPA policy will have to change measurably after this ruling. The court's holding can't just be ignored. Well, it's an open question, and it depends on how the Clean Air Act is interpreted going forward, both by the court and the EPA. Let me step back from your question a little bit. I mean, I I think there's no doubt this is a significant opinion in the sense that now the ball is in the EPA's court. The EPA has the power to regulate global warming, not only by emissions by American cars, but emissions by uh, American industry. So the EPA has been given quite a broad authority to regulate the American economy in the name of global warming, and it can now do so without having to go to Congress. So there's no immediate democratic check on the EPA's power. But that being said, the EPA has some arguments in its arsenal if it doesn't want to regulate right away. The Clean Air Act doesn't, for instance, require the EPA to implement regulation of sort of regulated pollutants immediately. The EPA has some discretion to argue, for instance, that technology for remediating global warming simply isn't cost-effective or feasible right now, and that there needs to be a period of technological development before it would start enforcing any global warming standards it comes up with. So that's an important limitation on the EPA's obligations 
going forward. A second argument in the EPA's arsenal is that when it decides not to do anything, it deserves a lot of deference. This is an important rule of administrative law that courts shouldn't second-guess decisions by agencies not to regulate because agencies are in the best position to weigh different priorities, and agencies have limited resources. They have to pick and choose which problems to deal with now, which problems to deal with later. Courts shouldn't make those priority choices for them. So if the EPA comes back and says, you know, we think this is a problem, we think American car makers should aspire to meet certain standards, but there needs to be some more development of technology before we start enforcing these standards, there's a good case that courts should respect that judgment by the EPA. And then finally, this is an opportunity for the EPA to revisit the science of global warming. The court said that the EPA doesn't have to regulate if it shows that there's not a consensus about whether global warming is a significant problem. And one of the problems that the EPA created for itself was that it's constantly acknowledged that global warming is a real problem. Now it has an opportunity, potentially, to revisit that judgment and consider some of the evidence put forward by climatologists like Cato's Pat Michaels that global warming, while uh, perhaps a real and man-made phenomenon, isn't necessarily a catastrophic phenomenon. But did the plaintiffs even have standing in this case for the court to have heard their claims? Well, that was another important issue in this case. Standing is a doctrine that limits litigants' access to courts. Litigants have to have a concrete and immediate injury, something that courts are capable of redressing. And the argument was that global warming is something that if it's going to cause any harm, that harm is going to materialize quite a long time from now. I mean, the estimates put forward by the petitioners about when real harm would start to materialize were really about 100 years out from now. And so the argument was that under the court's standing precedence, this just isn't immediate or concrete enough an injury to justify hearing the claims. And the court liberalized the standing requirements in a number of ways that I think will make it much easier for environmental litigants to get into the court in the future. First, it seemed to recognize special standing for states. States don't have to meet all of the stringent requirements that ordinary individuals do when they're suing in federal court, particularly for environmental injuries. Second, the court recognized that when petitioners are suing for certain kinds of procedural harms, you know, agency is required to do action X, agency didn't do action X, that it's much easier for litigants to get into court to challenge that kind of procedural harm. So both of those holdings are, while technical changes in standing law are nonetheless significant because they can open the floodgates for much more environmental litigation and give federal courts a much greater role for sorting out a lot of these environmental debates. Now, just wrapping this up, how does a federal agency like the EPA losing this case reflect on the Bush administration? My own feeling is that the Bush administration probably bears some share of blame for the outcome in this case. And it's obvious, not only in this case, but a string of cases over the last couple of terms, that there is a five-member majority that deeply distrusts President Bush's role as the head of the executive branch. The EPA's decision here had a lot of Bush's fingerprints 
on it. And a majority of the court essentially, I think, is less willing to entertain agency positions where Bush's fingerprints are on it. I think there's a good case to be made that there's an important role for the president in directing and managing agencies under his control. The unfortunate thing is that because Bush has pushed the boundaries of legal arguments about executive power in a number of other areas, particularly in the foreign policy area, that's kind of tarnished his opinion before a majority of the court across the board. And so now even in areas where his role in setting policy is legitimate, as in this case, the court is taking a much harder look at the actions of his agencies. And in this case, that's had a real detrimental effect in an important policy area in the global warming context. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.